3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome to 3CR 855 AM and also welcome to those listening via various podcast platforms or via streaming on 3cr.org.au. Your hosts are Indra, Gemma and Sue. We would like to start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the original and rightful custodians of the land that 3CR broadcasts from. We also acknowledge the First Nations custodians of the various lands all of us in this program are joining from. We pay our respects to elders past and present, and we acknowledge that this land was stolen and never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Pretty much everything that goes on in the modern common law justice system uses the English language. In fact, the whole concept of the Western legal system was based on the oral tradition. Um, Law and judgments were read aloud before they were ever written down. And still today, our system depends on a deep understanding of the English language. This ranges from the obvious things like the ability to to take an oath um, or to to make an affidavit uh, to the more subtle things like knowing uh, when you have been asked to stand or bow to to a judge um, or appreciating when in cross-examination an accusation has been put to you. So in law, knowledge of language is power. So imagine what it's like to find yourself caught up in a system where you're not able to follow what's going on because your first language is not English. You might be fluent in multiple languages, but if English isn't one of them, then you're in a difficult position. I imagine that could be pretty scary. So when this happens, how does and should the legal system respond? Tonight, we're talking all about this. We're exploring this experience through the eyes of an interpreter. So who not only works in the legal system, but is also writing her PhD on this topic amongst other stuff. She's amazing. Welcome to our special guest, Akuch Agnes, who has two master's qualifications and is now undertaking her PhD research at La Trobe University. And she is a professional interpreter. She speaks Dinka, Arabic and English. Welcome, Akuch. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. So great to be here. <laughs> Akuch, just to start off with, I guess, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your role as an interpreter within the legal system? Maybe what, what brought you to, to become an interpreter as well? Yeah, yeah. I think my... Um, drive or my passion to pursue uh, work as an interpreter started when uh, my family and I arrived in Australia in 2005. Um, It was pretty challenging to communicate in English because we we didn't speak English at all and so did um, other families that arrived at the same time as refugees in Australia. So I realised that there was need and there was a very high demand within the community to uh, have access to interpreters that are from the same community and from the same cultural background 
Um, so I started on a voluntary basis, just interpreting for my immediate family, interpreting for my relatives, and that expand to, you know, being called by no one in the community. So <laughs> I thought since I'm already doing this pro bono, I might as well just um, pursue their qualification and their accreditation for it in order to become um, a professional, professionally recognized interpreter, which is um, the one that actually work in the legal system. Like if you if you're not accredited or qualify as a professional interpreter, you can only interpret in certain other various settings within the community, but you can't interpret as um, as a, a legal interpreter from on a legal setting. So is it? Who is it exactly that em- employs you? Like, how does the in- interpreting system work? Is it sort of, because I would imagine it would also be in a lot of different settings, like it may be in courts, or how does that sort of work? Yeah, you can, um, once once you complete the, the training and the course or the NAFIS accreditation exam, uh, you can register with various interpreting agencies. There are there is VIPS, there's OnCall, there's All Graduate, and so forth that are um, based in Melbourne and um, internationally and nationally. Or you can get contracted um, by the court. That's uh, rarely uh, that rarely happens um, because they prefer all the interpreters to come through an in, through an agency because the agency does a lot of background checks, a lot of training, a lot of, um, uh, you know, professional development courses and training on the side just to make sure that you are on top of uh, new regulation, new code of uh, conduct, new ethics and so forth. So you get contracted through an agency and then you work um, in, in, in various legal settings. I feel like that leads on nicely to one of my questions which I was interested in asking, which is obviously it's, a, it's an industry which is really well-regulated or and, and professional. Um, what's Given that and wanted to, wanting to ensure that there's a really high standard maintained, what are the kind of hallmarks of a very good interpreter? Like, do you, Are you able to watch other interpreters doing their craft in court or in other settings and understand the, how a quality interpretation should look? Yeah, when you're when you're going through the training, um, either that's uh, the training to sit the exam or to um, or just doing the course, a diploma or a certificate or a bachelor's, um, there there are a lot of instances where uh, you do uh, scenarios, you you go to to court just to observe, um, or you uh, can uh, have a a sort of um, a, a mock exam within during the course, so you become um, comfortable, comfortable and confident in um, understanding the the non-English speaker and the speaker. Uh, obviously, you have to have um, you have to be very sufficient in being an intuitive um, listener uh, and also um, excellent concentration and, and memory. Memory is, wow. a, is a huge part of. Uh, of the job because um, you, you you really have to remember what each party says in order to translate it accurately um, and and clearly so that both both parties can understand what you're saying without um, with, with, without um, altering the message that was said. Yeah, I was going to ask a bit more about that. I guess like when 
what leeway do you have as an interpreter, I guess, to obviously relay the kind of word-for-word practical um, mirror, you know, in what another language might be versus the underlying sentiment of what is being put at, you know, how can you, what kind of, um, how much can you add on your own interpretation or read into that, that those words? Mm. Uh, <clears throat> our code of conduct and ethics says that there are no leeways you have to translate the message according to how it's it's um it's been said by the party that you're interpreting for however that is challenging and tricky sometimes depending on the language that you're interpreting it into because um dialects also play a huge role and interpreting in a legal setting um is is quite tricky because our legal system uses a language that is um, sort of almost a language on its own. Indeed. That, that not even like a, not even an English, a native English speaker can fully comprehend if they are not from the legal, uh, if they don't have a legal background. So training to um, to understand the, the the language in a legal context is is a huge puzzle on its own that you have to figure out, and then um, translating that into the native language that you are interpreting it into, and making sure the meaning is the same or very similar because sometimes there are no um, words that can translate the exact terminology into the native language without you having to um, unpack it a little bit for the native speaker in order for them to fully understand what the word means. So it's, wow. it's, it's a lot of processing um, when, 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 you're, when you're interpreting the meaning. Uh, it's a lot of, um, it's, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, pulling from your uh, cultural awareness, uh, competency, and, and, and meaning of the word um, into the, the native language. And sometimes when you speak various languages like myself, you can, you can really get, um, you can, it, it can get really tricky because um, the, the way the brain works sometimes, you can, um, make a mistake of saying the word in, 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 in Swahili or in Arabic or in Dinka <laughs> when you're supposed to say it in English. <laughs> so it's, um, Your brain is operating at a, at a wholly different level, I think, to mine, of That's unfortunately an issue that I will never, <laughs> I will never come across because I'm just so um, uh, bad at languages. But far out, that must be so exhausting. You must be exhausted by the end of an, an, an interpreting period, you know? Yeah, it is, um, it is exhausting, uh, but it's also joyful because you, you walk away knowing and feeling that, especially the non-English speaker, it is being given the agency and the opportunity to communicate what they want to communicate across. Um, so in a way that is quite fulfilling, uh, you know, giving people the chance to, to, to speak. Uh, regardless of what language uh, they they speak, 
um, I should say, giving people the chance to communicate um, regardless of what language they speak. Yeah, I um, I have to say I've had the um, privilege of watching an interpreter uh, do their work in, in a trial set setting. It was a criminal law setting when I was working at the court. And um, I saw firsthand how very quickly the entire legal system grinds to a halt if um, the interpretation um, is, you know, if, if, if there's a, an issue between a barrister and an interpreter or and the, you know, in this case it was the accused, um, where the interpreter was doing their best to try and translate what was being put, but it was, you could see it was the ships in the night that people were just, they were just missed meanings that were going across and suddenly the courts really shown up as this very awkward um <laughs> place um so you must have seen a number of uh or, or perhaps experienced that firsthand as well yeah yeah there are um instances where um as you as you probably would all know because you're from um that background also in court um it's things happen really fast and, and you are expected to uh, just bounce uh, off the information as it comes. Um, but sometimes it's, it's, it, it can happen and it's, uh, it's doable and interpreters do manage to do that uh, because they are trying to, um, to do what, what, what's, what's being said and translated um, accurately with great meanings. However, sometimes when um, the lawyers and barristers of the judge are speaking too fast um, and expecting the interpreter to travel at the same speed, um, disregarding that uh, one sentence can sound like one sentence in English, but if I was to interpret it to a dinga speaking um, accused or um, the person that I'm interpreting for, uh, it's it might take me two, three more minutes. It might be a whole. It might sound like a whole conversation that I'm having with with the with the with <laughs> with the accused. Um, and sometimes the lawyers can and the barristers can get really um, frustrated as you know why is she going why is she taking so long, uh, not knowing that it's the interpreter is really trying to get what they've said into the language accurately and to the to to the accused so they can understand what what's being asked of them or what is said well what it, you kind of talked a little bit we we had a question about what are the common mistakes that um people make when working with interpreters um and you've mentioned some there are there any others you can think of yeah i think sometimes expecting interpreters to be um to 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 be on your side as as a as a lawyer um whereas you know, we are trying to not take side or be biased like we're literally just an information channel so you can't favor um the the side of the lawyer or the side of the accused or the person that you're interpreting for um also um Sometimes there are instances where you're asked to give an opinion on a cultural uh, issue um, that that the law is not quite interpreting, or the, it doesn't it doesn't really come across 
um, to be understood in a legal contact. Uh, and the, 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 the judge or the lawyer or whoever that you're working with can ask you sometime, also, what do you think? And, you know, it's like, I know, I, I can't tell you what I think because that would be a breach of my code of ethics. I know what I think, but it's, I'm not a boy. Um, I know what I think. I think that. you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm not employed to do that. You know, you can, you can actually, you can hire someone within the community that have that expertise to give an expert advice on that subject matter. Um, I can't come and play both an interpreter and uh, an advisor on a cultural issue. <laughs> so, so it's, um, yeah, and sometimes it could be the, the native speaker that really expect you to, to be understanding of their situation, to be on their side, because you know you're from the same cultural background. Why are you being mutual? And because we we come from a very communal um, society and community where every 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 older woman is your auntie, every older uncle is your every older young man is your uncle, and um, sometimes if you if you're very um, objective in your role that can come across uh as can come across as rude and being disrespectful and you know you're lagging the the, the qualities of a you know a, a, a very cultured south sudanese girl or south sudanese wow. woman and you know it's hard to communicate it to them sometimes that you know uncle or auntie this is this is my job that I'm doing. I'm just doing my job. I'm not here as, you know. <laughs> um, you know, it's your friend. So, it's, yeah. So what about, um, you know, during COVID, like right now we're Zooming this. So how has, has the online context affected your role? I mean, I imagine um, there's a lot of information that, that you gather um, that's not spoken. So how how does that how has this online context affected your role? I also know you, there's telephone interpretation. So how does that impact on what you do? It is so complex right now uh, because most of the, the the communities that are in that I interpreted that I interpret for. Um, it, as you know, from non-English speaking background, and that comes with another layer of sometimes not being uh, very sufficient with the usage of technology. So sometimes um, I would spend a couple of minutes just trying to explain how to set them up online <laughs> rather than, you know, diving into um, my job and just doing the, the interpreting. Um, you know, sometimes they can, we can be in a hearing and they, they mute themselves or they turn the camera off. And I would say, unmute yourself and turn the camera off. And, and the lawyer or, you know, um, or the barrister saying, what are you telling them that I, you know, what are you telling them that I didn't tell you? I'm like, no, I'm just telling them to unmute. <laughs> so, um, a lot of administration duties that have been added onto my role. Uh, but it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging time for everyone in the community. So we have to be patient and, and understanding of the situation that we're all in. Oh my goodness. Um, 
That's a funny story. Have you got? Is there any quick funny story that you've got from your time as an interpreter in the justice system? I'm sure there are plenty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there are there are instances where um, the verdict doesn't go uh, in favour of the accused, and they would say really things that. Um, that if I was reinterpreting them back to the barrister, they would potentially get them more into trouble. So I just choose not to interpret, and then the barrister would be shouting at me, pretty by that, why aren't you interpreting? And I'm like, you don't want to know. I want to know. And I, oh, that's a great point to end our discussion on. Wow. <laughs> Over to you, Indra. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for joining us. It was just so interesting to get an insight into this role. I mean, it's just such a complex and nuanced role that I guess is potentially also somewhat overlooked sometimes like in, in just how complex it is. So thank you so much for, for sharing your, your insights and your experiences. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really had a good time. It's good to have a laugh about the justice system every now and again. We need it. Yeah. And to you, our listeners, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Indra, Gemma and Sue on Done By Law, 3CR 855 AM. Done By Law returns Tuesday at 6 PM. And that was Akuch and Yeath, her uh, was giving a very fascinating insight into the world of interpreting in the legal system. Um, yeah, I always love listening to Done By Law. And as they said, you can catch them every Tuesday evening here on 3CR Community Radio. Such a fantastic program. And good morning to all of our listeners today. Uh, you're joined by Jacob. And Fung. Um, and it's a very cheery Monday morning here in the studio today. Yes, I feel like we were just having a really nice chat this morning about lots of different things. Yeah, yeah. Um, we were talking a bit about creatively how uninspiring a lockdown can be. And now that the lockdown has lifted, the creative energy and the creative juices are simply just flowing between us (laughs) yeah i think it's really hard to it can be really hard to be creative when you're not outside and Mm. and just taking in you know your physical environment speaking to people getting ideas from them so yeah it is nice to to start thinking creatively again I mean for me I like to draw (laughs) and paint and things like that and I know during lockdown I was putting a lot of my a lot of pressure on myself to continue doing those things but it was just really hard Mm. Um, and I know Jacob you were saying that you are thinking of writing a story oh yes I've recently reconnected with my my love of words Um, so yeah I'm really hoping to get back into writing creative uh, fiction short stories um, and hoping to put pen to paper at some point this week. Um, but other than that, it's it's funny because I think um, I think we were talking about this as well, how socially burnt out we both are from, lock, uh, from you know, reuniting after lockdown. I feel like it's probably something a lot of people are feeling 
after um, so many months apart, there's a, a sort of pressure to make up for lost time. Um, and I was a bit sick of seeing people on Saturday night, so I decided to lock myself in my house um, and learn the opening monologue for King Richard III instead. So that's, that's another creative pursuit. That's amazing. I love that. I think, I think being able to have boundaries for yourself at this time when things are opening up and there is a lot of that social pressure, that's really important to continue doing things that feel right for you and maybe help you to um, relax and feel rested after a big day of socialising. <laughs> Certainly. I, lo- I love how you're affirming me as though this wasn't a really <laughs> weird thing to do on a Saturday night. <laughs> I love it. I'm so impressed. Now I want to think of, maybe I want to choose a monologue to learn oh. on a Saturday night. So if you have any suggestions, please, Jacob, let me know. Sure thing. Maybe that's a new segment of the show, Monday Monologues, where we, <laughs> we just perform <laughs> for each other. Yes, I'm sure our listeners would love that. For sure. Uh, definitely something unique um, on 3CR Breaking News. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now we're going to go to a song. We've actually got a very exciting interview that Fong lined up for us happening um, in about five, ten minutes. Um, but before that, we're going to go to a musician called Yara. Um, they are based in Melbourne. They're a Palestinian jazz soul artist. Um Yeah, take a listen. This one's called Man-Hater. Do it. 
myself Worth of my word is how I measure the weight of my wealth Women of the world, if you're wondering, it's time to raise hell Won't go quietly whispering, pretty happy, just risking Don't wage war at the glass boys on your roof When they fall and shatter, the one to catch them is you Sharpen your weapons of wit, fill the cracks in the fault line Tell them you don't get to decide whether my body is mine was Man Hater by Yara featuring Manali. I love that song. Yeah, what a fresh track. Such a good way to start the morning. Um, so now we've got Jessica Morrison, Executive Officer of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, who joins us this morning to talk about Palestine National Day 2021. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Jessica. Thank you. Thanks so much for getting up on this cold morning to give us some breakfast radio. Oh, thank you for joining us. It's such a pleasure to have you. Um, could you please tell us more about APAN or the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network and the work that you do? APAN's been around for 10 years um, and it's the peak body for organisations and individuals that care about Palestine. So it's made up of diaspora Palestinian groups, grassroots advocacy groups, aid and development groups, unions, faith groups, and a whole lot of individuals that care. Um, and so we work together to do all sorts of things to advocate for Palestine. We talk directly to parliamentarians and do lobbying. We try and engage proactively with the media so they understand inherent bias against Palestinians, uh, and we support grassroots advocacy. Yeah, what you mentioned there before about 
um, talking to the media directly about the bias against Palestine um, in news coverage is so important and we've definitely seen a lot of that happening here <clears throat> in so-called Australia lately. Um, before we get into Palestine National Day, I did see on the APAN website that there is currently a petition to defend um, Palestinian civil society. I was wondering if you could tell us more about that and whether there has been any response from the Australian government? Yeah, for sure. So Israel has been trying to discredit Palestinians um, for decades and decades, from saying they don't exist to they're all terrorists to, you know, you name it, they've They've thrown it at them. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, Israel made the outrageous step of prescribing six of Palestine's kind of preeminent human rights groups as terrorist organisations, which would be laughable if it wasn't so disastrous for these organisations. Um, so all of the organisations use, you know, legal and human rights advocacy is the core bit of what they do. None of them advocate violence. None of them have been involved in armed resistance. Um, so for Israel to throw this mud at them feels absolutely horrendous. Um, and already one European country has responded by withdrawing funding. Um, Israel haven't provided evidence for this. It seems very unlikely they can and would. Um, but it's just another one way that they discredit Palestinians. So they were asked by Senator Janet Rice about this in estimates a couple of weeks ago. And the foreign minister said, we're asking for more information about it, which is typical of this um, Australian government where the rest of the world is expressing outrage and condemnation. We express concern or ask for more information. Mm. So, yeah, so, so the, um, some, uh, um, the Australian Centre for International Justice has launched a petition, got a whole lot of kind of high-profile Australians to sign it and human rights groups, and now we're supporting them to get everyday Australians to sign up. So apan.org.au, um, up the top of our website, you can, with a couple of clicks, join up too. Yeah, certainly sounds like quite a lazy response from the Australian government on this issue. Um, I wish I'm... it was lazy, Jacob. I, I wish it was lazy. But mm. unfortunately, this is the most anti-Palestinian government we've ever had. Mm. And look, there's quite a few in contention. But they have systematically enabled Israel to step all over more Palestinian land and rights. But they've also wound back things in Australia. So they've decimated aid to Palestine. They have um, changed voting in the UN um, against Palestine. And they have got softer and softer in what they say. So unfortunately, I don't think it is lazy. I think it's that they are um, inherently locking in to an Israel-only position. Yeah, well, thank you for correcting me. Man. It sounds <laughs> like we, we certainly have Sorry, you hit a button there. You hit a button no, there. <laughs> no, I do apologise. I, I guess I um, misunderstood the Australian government's stance on the issue. But um, it sounds like we're, yeah, as you said, proactively anti-Palestine, which is horrible. Mm. What do you think would the significance be of, um, I guess, actions taken by the Australian government? Has international condemnation led to any change in the past? Well, I mean, to quote, quote Martin Luther King, the arc of, the, of justice is long. 
Um, and the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And I think what we've seen in the last five and ten years, thanks to an international mobilisations, is countries getting stronger and stronger in calling for Israel to abide by international law. I mean, it's many decades since they started breaching UN resolutions. Um, and UN Security Council resolutions for that. But countries are getting stronger in their condemnations. Um, <clears throat> so Australia at the moment is standing almost uh, on their own in, ref in not condemning Israel. And so we're kind of seen as a middle power who is one of the last um, kind of settler colonial states, if you like, alongside the US predominantly, um, who won't call out Israel for what they're doing. Um, so for Australia to start to be stronger makes huge ripples. So under the last Labor government, they weren't radical, but they started to be stronger um, and talk about Israeli settlements as illegal, which is kind of the baseline everybody else has used for a long time. Um, that caused huge news in Israel. And the Australian Labor government talking about recognising Palestine, again, makes huge ripples inside Israel. And it doesn't feel like a radical step to us. Um, but what Israel is holding out for on is being able to keep being considered as an equal nation among democratic nations. Um, and I think the thing that will make a difference is that the international community, including people and states, saying, ah, 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 you can't behave like this and expect to be considered one of us. Like, nobody thinks Saudi Arabia, in a sense, is, quote-unquote, one of us, or Myanmar's junta is, quote-unquote, one of us. But Israel wants to use the same sort of tactics they use, but be considered a modern democratic nation. So that's why what happens in Australia is really significant, because at the moment we're kind of allowing them to get away with all this stuff. Um, but if Australia were to stop, then I think it would signal to Israel that they're blank checks kind of be coming to an end. That's really interesting. Well, I hope, um, you know, this latest petition will um, start to make moves and, and I guess we'll just watch this space and see what happens in the, in the coming weeks and months. But pivoting slightly now um, to the main, I guess, topic of today's chat with you, Jessica, um, today is Palestine National Day. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the significance of the date, um, November 15th, for, for Palestinians. Yeah, for sure. So it was back in 1947 that the world said, let's have, let's carve up this old what was called the British Mandate of Palestine um, and let's give half of it to Israel and ha half of it to what will become Israel and half of it to, to Palestine. Two states for two people. Um, and the Arab world went, what? You can't give away half of our country to an ethnic group um, who already exists within Palestine. Can't we all still live all in together? Um, but anyway... 1947 happened, Israel established themselves as a state. So Palestine's waiting for them to also get recognised as a state and for the politics to rule, because um, Israel pushed and took over lots more land than they were kind of allocated in the UN plan in 1947. So um, the world was kind of having a crack for many decades at saying, yes, Palestine should have a state, but not actually making sure it happened. So in 1988, so what's that, 40 years mm -hmm. later, Palestine went, oh, that's enough. And the leadership went, we're just self-declaring independence. 
So the Palestinian National Council, headed at that point by Yasser Arafat, um, and in a beautiful statement of declaration, you can look it up, written by the then kind of um, most prominent poet, Muhammad Darwish, um, made this statement of declaration and said, we declare ourselves as an independent state. And automatically, uh, almost immediately, dozens of states signed up. And since that time, 138 states have signed up to that as well, recognising Palestine as an independent state. Not surprisingly, Australia's not yet one of them. <laughs> but... Well, we're hoping that Australia will join the majority of the world and recognise Palestine. So this is kind of, it's the only public holiday in Palestine that has, doesn't have a religious um, connection, a Christian or Muslim religious connection. It is the date where they say, we have declared ourselves independent. We will be independent. We have a right to be independent and to the basics of self-government. Um, and so that's what this date is. Um, that since 1988 it has been the Palestinian National Day. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and there's an online event taking place this evening at 6 o'clock, hosted by the, the Palestinian Community Association of Victoria, Australians for Palestine, Free Palestine Melbourne, and, of course, the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. Tell us yes, a bit more about that. and a couple that. of other groups called Casey Friends of Palestine, which is out in the local government area of Casey, mm -hmm. and Hirak, which is a new, very exciting group that you should so look up on Facebook, um, a new, exciting group of young um, Palestinians. Um, so, yeah, for six years... Um, or seven years ago, somebody rang us and said, did you know that they fly the flags of countries um, on their national days? And we said, no, we didn't. So we should ask them to fly a Palestinian flag on their national day. Mm. And um, Palace, uh, Federation Square went, sure, why not? Uh, so we bought eight huge flags. And six years ago, a small group of the community gathered and danced as the Palestinian flag was hoisted over Federation Square. And since then, it's been a growing and exciting date in the calendar where Palestinians and their friends can come to Federation Square and see that in this moment, at least, Palestine is recognised as a country amongst nations and their flags, like any other country, can fly over Federation Square. So it's a really exciting day. Um, unfortunately, last year and now this year again, COVID's mean that we can't gather in person. Um, but that's not going to stop us, of course, and a small group of Palestinians will be there in Federation Square today. Um, if you go past Fed Square already, um, most of the flags are raised and you can take photos and share on social media. That would be tremendous. Um, that the Palestinian flags are flying, um, uh, flanked by the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags because solidarity is really important to us um, in this movement. Um, for other people dispossessed of their land. Um, so the... We will gather at 6 o'clock, a small group of Palestinians. They're going to share poetry. They're going to dance, Palestinian dance. A couple of young Palestinians are going to give some powerful speeches. Um, and then they will raise the last flag. Um, so we'd love for you to join us online. Again, you can jump online at apan.org.au um, and find you can either join us on Facebook streaming or on Zoom. So it would be great to have you there. And every year for me, I'm not a Palestinian, and for me it feels like I just get fed and nurtured by this passionate 
culturally deep kind of um, history of being able to resist with their joy and their um, passion as well as their frustration and their anger. And it always fills me up because I know that together we can keep going for another year until this oppression falls. Wow, that was such a an impassioned, um, I guess, description of of what's to come uh, tonight at at the at the celebrations. Um, I can't imagine why, after listening to that, you wouldn't want to join in. Um, we can definitely pop the link to the event in our show notes later this morning so our listeners can um, register to the Zoom. Um, one last question, Jessica, because we are running out of time. If yeah. people would like to get involved and show their support for Palestine, what are some actions that you would recommend that they take? So sign up to the mailing list of APAN, again, at apan.org.au or your local solidarity group. There's always events going on. Um, you can also, uh, there's all sorts of mailing lists you can join to keep yourself informed. You can formally join APAN as a member. Um, and uh, as with all all allyship, kind of make sure you are finding ways to listen and be led by Palestinian voices. Um, and at APAN, we really... Um, highlight this mm-hmm. and so you'll always find Palestinian voices on our social media and our website page. So every day there's kind of um, mailing lists you can join and in the next month there are many events to participate in. Um, so this week's Palestine National Day um, the week after that is another wonderful online event which escapes me right now. Um, and then there's the Run for Palestine. So there's a fun run in the Botanical Gardens um, on the 28th of November. Um, and then um, a few days later, there is the Jerusalem Peace Prize where Uncle Gary Foley is being um, given the Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize in recognition of his work. So in the next month, there are literally many ways that you can support the cause um, and it would be fantastic and really meaningful to Palestinians around the country to know that this movement is continuing to grow um, and will continue to demand freedom, justice and equality until Palestinians have those things. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for joining us this morning to speak to us about um, Palestine and about National Palestine Day and tonight's event. Um, I hope you have a great evening and and, um, I hope a lot of people show up online to show their support and celebrate with with Palestinians in, um, in Melbourne. But thank you again for joining us on 3CR Breakfast this morning. And hope to see lots of listeners at six o'clock tonight online. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Jessica. So that was Jessica Morrison from the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network, or APAN, speaking to us about Palestine National Day and the online celebration taking place on Zoom tonight at six p.m. For more details, please go to www.apan.org.au or visit our show notes later today. 3CR also has its own show dedicated to Palestinian voices and stories. You can catch Palestine Remembered on 3CR every Saturday from 9.30 to 10 a.m. Wonderful. And we'll be right back after these community service announcements. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, 
You can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the campaign against racism and fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. your Radical Summer Attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Good morning. Welcome back to 3CR Brecky. You're joined by Jacob in the studio this morning. Uh, the time is 7.50. And we just heard from Jessica Morrison, who is the executive officer of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, chatting about the National Palestine Day. Um, and now we're going to go to a song. This one's called Yesterday by Mel Blue. Yesterday.
really should have tried Hopefully next time I get it right Before it's yesterday Welcome back to 3CR, Brecky. Uh, that song was called Yesterday by Mel Blue. They're a six-piece electro-pop band based in Sydney. And up next, we're going to hear a segment from Earth Matters. Um, it's a discussion on heal country, healing climate from the Better Futures mob. Earlier this year to celebrate NADOC Week, the Indigenous Peoples Organisation Australia, in collaboration with Better Futures Australia, hosted a webinar series called Heal Country, Heal Climate. And today on the show, we'll hear part three of a three-part episode called Healing Our Waterways. And this episode is chaired by Wiradjuri and Nyamba woman, Dr. Virginia Marshall. And the speakers are Murawuri and Budgety Elder, Bruce Shillingsworth, Niganawara woman, Dr. Ann Polina, and Murning Elder, Banalari. So, Uncle Bruce, coming from what Uncle Bon has said about, you know, the wisdom and the understanding of country, now many people would say uh, where they don't understand some of these issues that there are uh, schemes to actually flush out the water to the sea and they see that as wasteful. Can you explain that actually it's a connection and an important part of valuing uh, where the sea, uh, where the river comes out to the sea? Because many people don't understand that concept. Well, look, let me, I can, I can only speak on my nation and a part of the river where I live. We look like I said, it runs through the four states. If we look at them, the border of Queensland and New South Wales is a blocking of the river and the water that's coming down through my country in the middle of the river system, um, the, the Darling River. I mean, it stopped a lot of the water. If you look to the north of us, you've got stations like the Cubby, Cubby Station. That holds, that have got dams that hold more water than the Sydney Harbour, that are controlling the waters in the weir in the middle that got nothing. And down in the, in, in the Murray, you get the water there that's controlled by the big, uh, you know, walnuts and rice and all that, you know, big company that's controlling the water down there. It's water management, that's a big problem. I think it's the corporate greed, it's capitalism that's killing our country, killing our waterways. We're going to stop that. 
I believe that uh, we need to get to our leaders, get to our people that represent us to start making proper laws and start to acknowledge our existence, we're our nations as well. And I think non-Indigenous people need to be a part of that as well. I mean, non-Indigenous people need to help us in our future decisions, in our walk on this country. I believe that First Nation people are the pillars of this country. Uh, we should be leading this country in our climate decisions and in what affecting us today. And I think um, First Nation people are now coming together. We're starting to unite. We're connecting up. Um, it's a part of time and history now, I believe. It's very, very special because we are the now. And I think we live in this environment. And I think it's time that non-Indigenous people need to sit down with us and have these real conversations. For so long, we've been excluded. And now it's time to make them come to us. Come and sit on the rivers with us, sit on our riverbank, start talking to our First Nation people. And we have a lot to educate non-Indigenous people. We have a lot to educate the leaders of this country. And I think it can happen. If not, we will make it happen. We've got to make these uh, big corporates accountable. Where's the accountability here? There's been a lot of corruption that's happening, not just at a local level, but in federal and state levels as well. They've got to be exposed. Um, I believe that we need to look outside of Australia uh, for answers as well to the wider community. We need to get support from, from international communities and start putting pressure on our government. Yep, and that's, that's what we're talking about too in Western Australia is all of the, um, the, the billionaires and millionaires that are actually um, buying up water. How do you actually deal with that and protect it when we've got national water laws but they don't seem to be impacting and stopping that progression. How do you deal with those issues? Well, they're violating our rights. They're violating the laws. They're violating international laws. So when are we going to start making them accountable? They're the ones that are breaking the law. They're not acknowledging our law. They're not acknowledging our LOW here. Yeah, exactly. And these are the issues that you see, Anne, as well on country, where country's being bought up by billionaires and, and resource greed, if we put it into that way that Uncle Bunner's explained to on the sea country. So how do you actually deal with that? Do you actually take people like that and sit them on the river or uh, and do you wait? Or, or what's the, your ideas about how that can work on your country? I think that one of the things is um, we've got a history in the Kimberley of when we stand in unity, that that solidarity has got capital. So I think one of the things at the moment is looking at how does the Kimberley Land Council and the Matawara Council, which is six nations along the Fitzroy River, how do we stand in solidarity together? How do we work together as leaders on the region who are looking at what is being proposed for the Kimberley? And what we're saying is that it's time as sovereign people to act sovereign. And so what we need to do is that it's time to redefine who we are as a nation. Where do principles of equity and justice sit? Not just justice for people, but justice for multi-species justice. I think one of the things, as I said at the beginning, was there's been this declaration of peace through the treaty conversation, but I think it's time not only for peace, but to start to look at how do we start to get constitutional reform? Because I think one of the things that we need to do is what the old people say, wake up the snake, wake up the consciousness of the people to bring the people with us. Because as Bruce and are saying is that we're only, you know, a very small percentage and we're trying to share a story that this nation belongs to all of us 
and that we're heavily relying on a partnership with our non-Indigenous family to be able to rise up and look at it's time for our ancient Indigenous wisdom to inform legal pluralism, to inform governance, to include equity for all. It's time to build a coalition of hope. It's time to look at new ways of place-based governance around bioregions and watersheds. It's time to transition from the old economies. We care about people working in oil and gas. What does just energy transition look like for them? Indigenous people in the Kimberley particularly hold a great deal of opportunity assets to look at driving the new economies. We're so close to Indonesia with renewable energy. The bioprospecting that I talk about, that you know about, Virginia, is that there is great ways to make wealth, but it can't be in the destruction of our lands, our living waters and our people. So it's time for justice. It's time for equity. It's time for our nation to redefine who we are because the nation is not free because we're living under an illusion that we're living in a democracy when we're living under a constitutional monarchy. So in order for us to be free, it's time to grow up and head towards a just republic because the biggest problem I see in the work that I do is the imposition of states. And that is how colonialism was formed in this country, around the states. It's time to disband them. It's time to get on with regionalism. It's time for us to form a coalition of hope. Indigenous people need to lead this dialogue. I remember many, many years ago when someone came to me and said, will you run for the Greens? And I went back to my elders and I said, oh, these mob want me to run for the the Greens Party, you know what they said to me? You go back and tell them we're the dark Greens. We're the dark oh, hey. Greens. We've always been conservationists. We've always been the ones who've held the biodiversity in our hands. We've always been the ones to show that this multiple capital is there to share first with Indigenous people, then with the rest of the nation, and then outward into the world. We have solutions to right-size the planet this Indigenous wisdom coming from Indigenous people all over the world, what the elders are saying is that unless we're listening to this Indigenous wisdom, we won't be able to right-size the planet. So we live in a world of hope. We live in a world where we must build coalitions. We live in a world where ancient wisdom needs to drive the new development agenda. And it's time for justice and equity for our people right now, but also justice for our rivers, our living water systems, it's time to create peace with Indigenous people and with nature, and we need to lead that as the first dark greenies. Thank you. <laughs> yes, well, I think that's really well put. And also, it, historically, it makes a very good sense. Um, so, you know, the whole idea too, and, and we've been also very active in that climate change space, um, how do we make, um, you know, not only um, international bodies, but also awaken our um, national bodies to the whole idea that we can see those environmental indicators in the land, that it's certainly hurting and it does need healing. So how do we actually bring that climate change message and also healing waterways? You know, how do we actually do that? I think one of the things is to realise that rivers are living systems. They hold memory. So the memory of the people gone before us, the memory of the people who will come after us, is very much within that cultural landscape. These are living systems, and so we need to respect them, we need to nurture them, we need to save them. But I just wanted to make the plug that we're talking about living systems. The country is alive, the rivers are alive, the sea is alive. So we've got to come back to what are these values 
that Indigenous people have held from the beginning of time and how do we bring those values into looking at where we need to go, particularly in the new economies and the way forward. But we can't do anything without including country and the living water systems because that has been our greatest leader, our greatest mentor, the creator being that shows that together we have the song lines that connected us from the beginning of time right through to today. We are wakening up non-Indigenous people who come to country. Like Bana said, we can show you how to feel and hear country. We can show you how to feel and hear the sea. We can show you how to communicate with animals. And we can show you that animals can teach us how to be decent and true human beings. So from all of that, what we're saying as Indigenous people is that we are opening up our world and this gift of wisdom and love. And we want to share it with our fellow Australians because this is now your home. You have now a law of obligation to protect the rivers, to protect the sea, to protect the wild, to protect every living species that live within these systems. So we are coming with a gift of wisdom. It's actually free. We're not charging you. We're saying if you want to open up your mind and learn what it means to be an Australian, connect with Indigenous leaders like ourselves, get to know country, get to form a relationship with country, and we too will help you move into the new economies. But we must start with the point of what justice and equity looks like, and we must start with the principles of it's time to create peace with Indigenous people and with nature, and we've just got to get on with it, otherwise we won't be here in 10 years' time. You know, all of that passion and wisdom and connecting with country is so valuable. But we also know that the fracking issues are huge, especially in the Northern Territory and many other places across Australia. So, you know, how do we actually deal with mining in this space as well? I think, uh, well, because we've got a distraction of uh, COVID-19 restrictions and, and uh, you know, all that going on, we don't seem to be getting around to to keep an eye on our country. I think we need, what we need mostly is to sort of either get volunteers from our families and from, you know, indigenous tribes around this country. You can either train them or go out as a volunteer and do what our ancestors have done. Go out and uh, monitor, you know, continuous observation of country. In that way, you can see who's, who's doing the wrong things in the country. You know, we need to get into all this modern equipment like, you know, cameras and things and little what do you call them, thing, drones and fly them up to see who's out there digging a hole out there or who's out there dumping rubbish out there or even the people in some train motor drive a boat and get out in the ocean and drive and see who's out there, you know, just like what sea shepherds are doing and all that. We need continued observation of our country, land and sea and river. In that way, we can see who's there, you know, trying to do oil exploration or gas exploration or mining exploration and then you need to report them and, you know, get them up and kick them out of there and we're going to start standing up and doing things like that to uh, keep this continuous observation to the, of this country. Otherwise, there'll be nothing nothing left of it at the moment. It's just got holes in it everywhere at the moment. If you get up and fly in a big jumbo and you look down, you'll be surprised what you see, you know. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And uh, that's why I got the idea to write that song, Island of Greed, when I looked down, I saw these holes. And you, know, and you know what? When they dig holes, they don't even cover it up. They don't clean the mess up. They leave it open. Mm-hmm. And like our ancestors and elders say, you do not know what you're unearthing. You are unearthing the demon. And you know what I mean by demons? Mm. That's going to come out and haunt you for the rest of your life. That's going to come out in poison. That's going to come out in every sort of thing that was in the past life before mankind, you know, before the time of dinosaurs when the land was 
corrosion. And our geological people dig down and they, on every level, you'll see what happened, you know, 100 years ago or 700 years ago. So that sort of thing they're talking about when our people know about that is the demons going to come out, they're going to come out as demons and poison, toxins to disease like we have, we've got right now today, you know, a virus that we don't know what it is, you know. We must keep a continuous observation of our country, sea, waters, rivers and everything. In that way, we'll keep track of what the government is doing to this country and one that what the government is doing to our people, country, similar as that. And that's another way we can protect it because we, we got to speak up for it. And if we don't speak up now, speak up for our rights and speak up for what belongs to it. It's, that's all the assets. It's our fortune. Once again, I'll say it's our fortune. What is our fortune? Because on our country, what's, you know, it's our fortune. It's our assets. It's heritage to us because it's come from our people who, who were the first keepers and we, we are now the keepers of it. What was theirs? What's theirs? It's ours. You know, we are the protectors now. So, it's an ongoing job, and uh, that's what we must do, I reckon, and um, at least we'll know what's what's happening to our country and to protect the waters and protect the country and everything that lives in it. And most of all, protect your family as well. Right? Yeah. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and Heal Country, a forum to heal climate from the Better Futures mob. You can check them out at www betterfutures.org.au Thanks to Earth Matters for bringing us this report. One of the ways we can stop mining is, is form a grassroots movement and that's what's happening now. The battle is going to be won through grassroots movement and I believe it's coming to get not only a First Nation people but of all people. There's a problem globally that's happening with the land, with mining, and the exploitation of our lands, our rivers, our waterways. The only way to stop it is the First Nation people to stand up with the support of the wider community. We need to start getting the right people in the right places. We need to vote in proper leaders, leaders that will represent us. And I think if you look at all the battles that have been won in the past about our environment, that's been done from grassroots people. That's coming from people like you and I. And I think those voices that have been silent for so many years that need to be heard, we need to put that out there. We've got the platform now to do it. We've got to support globally. Um, the water issues and our land problems are not just here, but it's, it's with Indigenous people right across the world. Indigenous people are now starting to come together. We're coming together because it's time. We know that Mother Earth is speaking. Mother Earth is telling us that there's something wrong. The only way we, only the people that knows that is the people of the land, and that's First Nation people. So that's why the wider community is now coming to us for the answer, because they know that we have the answer, but they need to sit and listen to our First Nations voices. So grassroots, I believe in grassroots. I believe that's where the change is going to come from. It's going to come from people like you and I, not from the top. It's going to come from people in our communities, because we know what we want. We're the one that knows and solve our own solutions. And I believe that we can do it because evidence out there to say that now we're coming together. The dots are joining up. We're coming together. Our voice is now being heard and we're going to send it globally. Yeah, that's a very strong message that needs to be heard, Uncle Bruce. Uh, can I just also put in a question that um, someone's asked? Is how can um, uh, Aboriginal people 
who um, also have that cultural understanding and appreciation and knowledge who are also academically trained. So they've gone to university, they've got degrees in environmental law. How can they feel like they're contributing to all of those issues that we talked about today? And Anne, you know you've gone through, like myself, and I, had, I left at 16 uh, and went to work. You've gone um, from nursing to actually um, going into attaining uh, academic accreditations. So, you know, is there a space that um, Aboriginal men and women can actually find a, a purpose and contribute? That's what they're asking for, for, for those answers. I think one of the most important things is we're dealing with complexity. Definitely Indigenous people with qualifications have an extra bit to add because they've got lived experience of living with country, living within community. So they can bring that lived experience of colonialism into looking at how do we right-size our nation to start off with. And one of the things we're saying is that as Indigenous people, we've learnt through our lived experience what colonialism means. And what we're saying is that we want to share this with our fellow Australians because the colonialism now is through the corporations and the multinational companies. So what we've got is governments now fueling and funding on corporate welfare, this multinational stories that are going everywhere that is destroying our world. So I think one of the things we're saying is that this is actually now happening to you, everyone. The colonial framework that Bruce talked about around capitalism this is why the world is in the situation that it's currently in, because of the narcissistic epidemic of greed. My old people say greed got them beat. So how do we start to look at other forms of capital? And this is where we're saying is that countries, such an amazing living system, the birds, the trees, taking people on country, walking them through country, getting them to understand what it means to feel and hear country, whether it's in the sea, whether it's in the desert, whether it's in the rivers. So what we're saying is that we have a responsibility and a law of obligation to work with our non-Indigenous friends, family, fellow Australians and bring them on the journey because we really need to be mobilising this at a systemic change at so many different levels. So what we're saying is that just get out there. What somebody said to me one time when I was in America was, if you want to be a brave, you've got to be brave. So extend yourself. Find Indigenous people in the city, in the country, in, you know, regions. Get to know us. Your world will totally change once you start to develop a relationship with Indigenous people. Your world will become so much fuller, so much brighter. You'll see the world and be in the world a different way. So what I'm saying to those Indigenous people out there is that we all need each other. We all come from lived experience. We all come from multiple disciplines. The challenge is now how do we sit around the table and bring all this wisdom and knowledge and share it with fellow mm. Australians, but indeed the world, because we have the solutions. Indigenous people have the solutions for right-sizing the planet, for healing our toxic living systems. Wake up the consciousness that we need multiple ways to tell the story. We need mm. song. We need dance. We need ceremony. We need to get out to country and let's feel the vibration at the sea when we're standing on the Great Australian Bight and singing out and calling to the whales. We need this when we communicate with the crocodiles, with the birds, the fish, you know, the, the system that is so changing in the Murray-Darling Basin, in the Barker. We need to share our stories between the Barker and the Matawara. 
We need to share what the rivers are saying with each other. How can Marawara learn from the Barker? How can Barker learn from Marawara? So all of these things is be brave, get out there, share our stories, share our dreaming, share our ceremonies, but get to teach fellow Australians, particularly even Indigenous people, how to feel and hear the voice of country and our living water systems, whether they're in the desert, the river or the sea. So, um, yeah, be brave, get out there, try new things, have a go. This is what our country used to be one time, a fair go for all. We need to bring that fair go back for all of us, but particularly for Indigenous nations. Thank you. What I think we're all, we're all trying to say, look, there's people out there that want to contribute. You know, people out there that have been through university, that's got the skills, got the ability now to come into our communities and help us change our community. That's what we're asking for. You know, we need scientists. We need people, know people in laws. We know, you know, all those sorts of people we need now to be able to fix the problem we're in. But most and foremost, we need proper leaders and, you know, proper politicians. We need a proper prime minister. All those people. We need those people. So what we, what we're saying is now we need to start coming together. That's our challenge, to bring it together, to make things right, to talk about the wrongs of the past. But it's us, it's us, we are the now. We're going to make footprints to the future. We're going to make decisions for our children and their children and children. So what we're saying is come with us, walk with us. We're on that journey. Come and join us. Come be on that journey with us. Let's be on the journey. We will reach our destination. But everyone needs to contribute, First Nation and non-Indigenous people. You know, we need to all come together and work together, you know, to to continue to uh, and fix these problems that we have today and sort it out. Because we need to be treated better in life and get a fair go in this country, a fair go for the for the First Nation people. Most important thing, so that we can uh, build a relationship as, you know, Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people and, mm. you know, white Australia. So this is what we, I think, uh, what needs to happen is let's build this relationship and work together and come together is very important. If not, you know, we, we still got our law and our customs that we need to push to continue to uh, teach our young people and continue to uh, have practices, you know, with ceremonies, corbies and rituals and, and celebration of our life and existence as Indigenous first Asian people of this country, so that's most important to uh, be, be uh, stand proud for. But uh, we have a fight on our hand, and uh, we need to push hard, and we need everybody to, even if they want their country looked after, they need to get up and, and, and step on the on the platform with, with all of us together, in that we have a one big, powerful, strong voice together, and that, well, hopefully the government might listen to everybody. You know, if we, you know, we need more people, so we just can't be treated as been under the thumb all the time. We need to be treated equally in this country. We're getting told for that under the thumb. So mm-hmm. we, we got to come together and, and stand together and talk because we just can't sing out from over the other for singing up there. We need that help over there. We need this help over there. Well, hey, how about bringing your bringing your tribe with you and, and let's sit down and have a big, um, you know, bungle or you know, crockery or and get together and, and talk about it, and then, you know, we can take it to the big stage, the highest stage, you know, so we know what everybody wants. So mm-hmm. already people can see what uh, what's going on. So it's very important to uh, have your say and speak your mind, and if you don't speak that, you're not going to get looked after. What they say is, squeaky the wheel gets the grease. Mm-hmm. That's the old saying, so 
Let's be more squeaky about it. <laughs> you know, we can talk about our survival. It's about changing the narrative. It's about who we are. It's about our identity and our celebration of First Nation people, of First People of this land. It's getting that message out there. It's it's educating the wider community, especially non-Indigenous people, about how history. It's about truth-telling. It's about caring for country. It's about looking about looking after our planet and our environment we live in. It's also about how we live together as as brothers and sisters, as 500 plus nations and non-Indigenous people on this land. And I think it's all about the wisdom and the knowledge that we bring forth to the, to the modern world. You know, it's about our survival. And as I think, it's about our future as well. I mean, when we talk about the dream time, we talk about the past, the present and the future. It's all about that. It's about us moving. And it's about the change. And I believe we live in a world of change now. And I think you can feel it and I can feel it. There's a change that's happening in the world. Um, we've got to be out there now. We've got to change the narrative. It's our truth-telling, it's our stories that need to be told, and I think that's what the world is looking for. And I think it's our platform. It's, our, it's about our identity and who we are. And I think and we should celebrate that. We heard part three of a three-part episode called Healing Our Waterways, and it's from the NADOC 2021 series, Heal Country, Heal Climate. This webinar series is hosted by the Indigenous Peoples Organisation Australia at indigenouspeoplesorg.com.au and Better Futures Australia at betterfutures.org.au And if you missed part of the show today, you can find the podcast and all the details of the speakers at threecr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. That was a segment from Earth Matters brought to you by Nikki. Um, and now in the closing minutes of the show, we're going to do a bit of a wrap up about the Conference of Parties 26, um, which was a global meeting of leaders in Glasgow to try and agree on a new climate deal. Um, overall, it seems that the climate uh, policies that were reached and agreed upon um, were not sufficient enough to keep global temperature rise below 1.5, um, with the Climate Action Tracker projecting that even if all the COP26 pledges are met, the planet is still on track to warm by 2.1 or even 2.4 degrees if only 2030 targets are met. And in an extraordinary move, the president of COP26, Alok Sharma, delivered quite an emotional apology um, at the end of the conference. Take a listen. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologize for the way this process has unfolded, um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. So Alok Sharma said he was deeply sorry for how negotiations had ended and he was unable to find the words as the crowd, the, sorry, the crowd applauded. 
Um, so a bit of a, a summary of what actually happened at the conference. There was two big ticket items that countries wanted to meet. Firstly, they wanted to renew targets for 2030 that align with limiting warming to 1.5 degrees, and they also wanted to reach an agreement on phasing out coal. Um, and it's arguable that neither of these uh, targets were really met, with India uh, changing the, the wording of the agreement to phase out coal from phase out to phase down. Um, which essentially is a watering down of the language used to ensure that the countries um, aren't held to account. Uh, now, there was also a agreement finalised in Article 6 um, in which the fossil fuel industry was allowed to offset its carbon emissions and essentially carry on polluting. Um, and this came about as COP26 finalised rules for global carbon trading um, but essentially, it, it still gives permission um, for fossil fuels to continue to offset um, as long as they plant trees and, and do various activities to offset those emissions. Um, and that's very much reflective of the approach of the Australian government, which is all about uh, technology, not taxes and, and carbon capture and storage and essentially relying on technologies that don't actually exist at the moment. Um, so those were kind of two of the major losses of the COP26. But I also want to chat a bit about some of the wins that came out of this, because while it was still a very watered-down and disappointing agreement, there was also some things to celebrate. So Article 21 of the Glasgow Climate Pact um, states that nature and ecosystems, including forests and biodiversity, must be protected. And this comes on top of a side deal struck by Australia and 123 other countries that are promising to end deforestation by 2030. Now, whether or not that's going to happen is questionable. Um, but this is the first step in the right direction to end deforestation by 2030. So that was probably one of the, the main wins. There was also another pact struck by countries that urges the um, the developed world to commit at least a hundred billion US dollars per year for five years to countries who are developing um, and vulnerable to climate change. So this is sort of a, a major step because it, it shows that there's some accountability there to the fact that developed nations are the most major emitters um, and, and probably caused most of the changes to the climate that we're seeing now. So it's great to see that there's a commitment to uh, contribute at least $500 billion to developing nations who are most at risk. Um, but hopefully this will actually translate into to money spent um, because, as we know, with some of these things, there often is a lack of accountability. Um, and in a more surprising move, which has left many of us cautiously optimistic, the US and China have struck up an agreement to cooperate on climate change. Um, so this, this comes between President Xi Jinping and President Biden. Um, and following the disastrous um, Trump era, which was 
catastrophic for for US climate policy. Um, but now these two major superpowers who account for about 40% of global emissions have struck up a deal to say that they're going to reduce emissions um, and agree to cooperate for the sake of climate change. Um, so there's a little wrap-up of COP26. Definitely an, an interesting one. And probably something to note as well is that countries have agreed to meet again next year um, to hopefully solidify some of those 2030 uh, targets and ensure that we are on track uh, to limiting warming as much as we can. Um, I think we've surpassed the point of 1.5 now in Australia at least, um, but I am cautiously optimistic that further negotiations um, will lead to some more hopeful outcomes. So that brings us to the end of our program today on 3CR Brekkie. Thanks so much for tuning in. We had a great segment um, from the Healing Country, uh, heal, a forum to heal climate from the Better Futures mob that was brought to you by Earth Matters. And we also heard from the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network um, about International Palestine Day today, um, which is fantastic. So make sure you head along to those events um, and hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.